But I think, I mean, I think that the end of the day is um, this idea of sort of assuming positive intent. Uh, have you heard that expression? Assume positive intent? No, but I want to I absorb that. Right. So assume, assume positive, positive intent. intent. So something happens in the workplace, somebody makes a mistake, somebody's, whatever it is, just assume positive. It means assume that they meant well. Assume that whatever happened that in this case was a bad thing, assume they meant well. Assume that their intentions are, are, are good. How does that then uh, help me? Hello, my name is Luis de Oliveira, founder of Dallas Bada, and this is A Place to Talk. We've come to Alma, a member's club in the Estermalm neighborhood of Stockholm, to meet Frederick Karlström, its co-founder and creative director. We looked at how hard work and taking risks paid off and how his experience in the film industry led him to other ventures. So let's get right to it. Frederick, why do you like to say that you started answering phones in uh, what I think was your first uh, job as an adult? Do I like to, have I said that many it, times? It comes up over and over. You know, I think it's two things. One is probably that I copy and paste answers to email questions. Oh, it's, uh, it's, so it could be probably that. But then I think it's uh, pretending to be a man of the people and sort of false modesty. No, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I didn't go to school. So I... Can I interrupt you? Yeah. You're a copywriter. Yeah. Every word has been measured and chosen carefully, I hope. So you're trying to say something, aren't you? Well, I mean, I think I'm trying to say that I have worked my way up, I guess. And that... Um, I mean, I did start answering the phone, so it's, it's also true. But no, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a big part of my narrative. I think that the big... The big um, kind of red thread in my life is that I've, um, I mean, I've done quite different things. I think there are a lot of similarities. We were talking before we started talking, you know, about film, and I used to do film, and I've done advertising, I've been design, I've done physical spaces. To me, it's there's a red thread to all of it. Uh, I don't know if it's always apparent to people, but I think, you know, it's... Well, help, help those of us that can't see it. What do you well, think? I mean, it's about... It's about, I mean, recently it's been about building spaces that people want to congregate in or be in. You know, we've, we're... we're is this the red, this is the thread that holds it all together? I think it's the, part of it. I mean, I think the red thread for, me, for, for all my creative projects is, is, um, is that, making, I mean, making creative projects together with other people, right? So whether you're making advertising for a client or you're... It's the same actors. It's the same, way. yeah. It's about having an idea or having someone else have an idea and then taking that idea and sort of uh, seeing it, seeing it clearly enough that you can get excited about it and that you are okay for months uh, to sort of push that stone up the hill a little inch by inch and, and overcome, you know, budgetary restrictions and horrible clients and bosses and, and uh, you know, timing and whatever the, whatever the world throws at us. I think if you don't if you haven't had that moment in the beginning where you saw it, you're like, I know what this can be, then it's not going to happen. There's nothing that comes up when, when I look at the formal CVs out there. And it's the fact that you started as, as a young person in doing things, doing things in business, right? You, I think there's a claim somewhere that age seven, you did something either in partnership with someone or... I don't know if it was seven, but, yeah, someone, no, but, but you, you, yeah. make, you make a claim that precociously early you got going. What, what yeah. kind of kid ends up selling lemonade to the neighbors or whatever it is that you did? What, what, <clears throat> what does that I, say um, about personality? Uh, restless, I guess. Um, 
I think I wanted to so desperately be grown up. Um, I think I wanted to be sort of in charge of things. And, and so I grew up in a suburb outside of Stockholm and, and um, I started uh, sort of mowing the lawns of neighbors and things like that. But quite quickly, I, that's not the fun part. The fun part was to organize it and to build a company. So I spent a lot of time like, playing office and having like, you know, my friends were kind of roped in as employees and we had all this sort of... You had a lot of fun raising invoices, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I thought that was... I, I, funny, I don't like that as much anymore, but I love the whole sort of paperwork around having a company and... Um, and Payroll, social security. It, it wasn't quite that legit, but, you know, I think, you know, what it ended was <clears throat> I was having dinner uh, with my parents and, and my brother and the phone rang and I was on, and I answered and I spoke to the person on the phone and I hung up and my parents were like, well, who was that? And I was like, well, it's a guy down the street who wants us to paint his house. Uh, and we were so excited. It was a huge job. And my dad was like, well, you can't do that. That's like a big, you know. <laughs> How are you going to get up on a roof? It's, you know, that's a little too big, you know. And, and uh, I think them seeing that this project would not end up being their project, they're like, they called this gentleman back and said, you know, it's not, it's not really a, a real company. It's these two kids and they're 10 years old or whatever we were. And, and that kind of killed it for me. That was it. Like, then we stopped. I wasn't allowed to do it, which, which I, I don't blame my parents for. You know, that, that brings me neatly <laughs> to something that uh, has caught my attention. And it's the fact that there's a, uh, a group of people called Swedes Abroad. And you just mentioned the suburb and you mentioned the fact that your business got shut down the moment it got daring, yeah. right? Is there Not such by a me, thing? But by, yeah. by, by the powers of be, yeah. right? Yeah. So is there such a thing as a Swede abroad? What does it mean to be Swede abroad? I don't know if I understand it's, it's gonna be, Well, you know, there's a certain group of people. Um, there's a diaspora of Swedes right. in all kinds of, in many different industries. Right. And they, they leave Sweden. Right. They may come back, but they go live, yeah. let's pick on New York, for example, yeah. right? Or, or elsewhere. And what's different about those people? Or is there anything that's happening there? Is it that kind of the opportunities just become irresistible? Is it a mindset? I mean, I don't, I think from an anthropological perspective, I think the Swedes travel a lot, which is, we've been doing that Small for a long time. Small country mentality, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. It's like, and you got to see the world. It yeah, is. and I think, you know, we've had a sort of a flourishing middle class for a long time since the war. And I think, you know, we have people... Go have holidays, some money and they go, go on holidays stuff. and it's also yeah. you know miserably cold here for most of the, most of the time so we believe so I think we've, we've always looked outwards we've always I mean for the longest time things in Sweden that didn't come from Sweden was a good thing you know we were very early adopting of like new food and new culture and new, new stuff like that and even to this day saying saying to somebody like oh he's he's really not Swedish I mean, he's really not very Swedish it's always a compliment you know so oh I love I love I love Paul. He's so not sweet. He's not a typical sweet. He's outgoing. He's fun. So it's actually kind of a compliment, which is which is strange. But um, strange in the context of some of the sort of xenophobia and, and right wing crap yes. that's going on. But um, but I mean, I mean, I'm not a huge part of the expat community to be uh, with Swedes. To be perfectly honest, I I think that there is two types of people abroad. I think there's people who are moved there. You know, they work for a bank or whatever insurance company or a bit larger corporation, and they kind of get transferred. You know, and everything is sort of taken care of, and they get and they might be counting the minutes until they go back home. Maybe right? I, don't, I don't know, but you know, they get you know they get corporate housing, they have a bank account, they don't have to worry about credit, the visa is taken care of, maybe their wives and kids are moved, but like that's all taken care of. So that's the one group, 
The other group is everybody else who, you know, comes, maybe they come on vacation and stay. Maybe they, you know, somehow get a visa. Maybe they live, you know, with a friend or they start working or they start on, like there's a thousand ways of getting, getting out. I belong to the latter group. I've always been sort of both slightly jealous and um, uh, slightly looked down on the, on the first group because I think they had it too easy. But there's two types of sort of immigrant, uh, uh, you know, stories. But um, I raise this because um, it sounds to me like you've been 19 years now in New York, right? right. So you've been a long time yeah. away, although you're, it sounds to me as well that you're here and there right. in both places, right? So 19 years is a long time. And that in Portuguese is an expression that dates back to the 18th century. And it's called estrangeirado. It means foreigner-ed kind of thing. So foreigner? Take the word foreigner and right. turn it into an adjective. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it, it, again, a small country, very similar to Sweden in terms right. of population, right? And all the action, all the intellectual action was happening in France and in Italy at that time. Think about it, the Enlightenment. And there's philosophy and art and music. And so people would leave Portugal to, to pick up this knowledge or to participate in that. And when they came back, they no longer quite fit in anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow being away changed them, right? And, and they, but at the same time, these people play an important role in Portuguese culture because they bring back these ideas right. and they write and they spread them. And do, do you follow me? They're not, totally they're not rejected, but they're no longer part of that world. Because somehow the bigger world has changed them. Well, would you say for those people, to, is it, does the Portuguese culture embrace them when they come back or do they get sort of ostracized a little bit? They're singled out. Their, right. their value is noted, right? right? But it's also noted that they're changed. <laughs> that they're different. Yeah. Well, what's that saying? It's not, it's not rejection. Right, Don't right, get me wrong. Right. And they're right. important. It's like I, I could go back and find you a number of authors, philosopher, mathematician come to mind. You know, people <clears> that then play an important role. But yeah. they're, they're singled out as like, they've left. And I look at you and I look at a lot of other Swedes in similar positions yeah. and it's like, you guys left now right. and you cha you're changed by that. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I think, that, I think that there's a sort of the, the two original stories, right? Somebody comes to, someone comes to the village and it changes because of it or somebody leaves, you know, the Odyssey goes yes. away. Those are the two, the two only versions of the story that's right. in history. So obviously that's, uh, I think that's quite significant in sort of human history. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think in my case, um, I think I left uh, Sweden. I left Sweden under circumstances that were, you know, I had, uh, I started a company when I was very young. Yes, um, so it was three years after you started a company. Yeah, yeah. so I, I started a company, an advertising agency, and, and it was very successful and I sold it. And, and we had, a, it was a bit of a, disagreement with some of my partners. So, so I didn't leave, um, I didn't leave Sweden on, on just amazing terms. I left it a, a little bit, bit grumpy, sort of, right? a bit grumpy. Yeah. yeah. Curmudgeon. Yeah. Uh, and I had a, had a long relationship that had ended cause I was never there. And, uh, so there so it wasn't just, I, I did, there was certainly a moment of fleeing. Um, and so for many years afterwards, when I came home, it was a kind of a complicated relationship with Sweden. I could would come home and I'd feel sort of, uh, not 100% at ease. That's long past. Now I, I love coming home and it's, it's, it's great. Um, but I think in many ways, I, when, I, when I moved to New York and I started living there, you know, people, oh, do you like New York? What do you like about it? it to me, it's like I like who I am when I'm there. 
I like me in New York. I'm more open. I'm more, uh, I think I'm more empathetic. I think that my sort of impatience is not seen as arrogance the way it is here. Uh, I think people in Sweden, you know, even in America, sometimes, you know, I even hear like, oh, you're so, you're so humble. Like, I, <laughs> that's never so, happened that's here. That's not what I hear, but like, so. Not, not here, not much here, you know. And uh, so to me, it's like, I like who I am there. Um, and I actually think that it's not as if you change it's the place is more accommodating I think so I think so I think it's more you know Sweden is an interesting place and it's it's you know uh, th there's been studies shown that we're an incredibly nationalistic part, uh, country you know but it's all hidden it's very difficult you know America is easy you eat a burger you wave a flag and you you know you know, they're much more overt in their sort of nationalism. Sweden is very, very you know, everything's very hidden. And, and I think in Stockholm in particular... But there's intense nationalism, intense oh pride, suspicion of a foreigner and pride in but, your own. But it's also the, the, like, even the sort of the sort of the upper class kind of codes of Stockholm, they're very... But you they're said a moment intense. ago that Sweden, um, up until recently, appreciated what came from the outside. So there's a, there's a contradiction there, isn't there? It's like we, I think we're we the best do. in the world, yeah. and can we please have some French fashion? Right. No, I mean, I think it, I think there still is, a, a, you know, a big sort of curiosity and an appreciation of what comes from abroad. I think I think there's a, I mean, we're a farmer community. I think there's a deep insecurity uh, mixed with a slightly condescending. Uh, View of the outside. View of the outside. I mean, it's a friend of mine who, uh, it's, it's two sisters and they're married. One is married to an American, one is married to a British person. And I, we spoke to them about them going to, on family holidays and hanging out in Sweden. And, and they both hate how they feel pat, patronized by, uh, by the Swedes. They're like, I know, sorry, you're not Swedish. You don't, you know, and it's like the Brits have a pretty strong culture and so does the American, but they, you know, the, the Swedes kind of pity them that like they're not Swedish. Sure, that's not politeness because the Swedes, nah. no, it's, it's nah. like, we're sorry, you're not Swedish. Yeah. It would be so um, much better. We're pretty cocky when it comes to, I think we're pretty confident in the, in the sort of excellence of our own model. Of the place, right? Yeah. And how well it's run and how good it is. Right, but then we like to complain about it as well, you know, we're the northerners. Hey, help me uh, give my audience a little bit of context here. So you, you started that um, advertising agency very young. <clears throat> you leave, you go to New York, and what happens there? I'm just trying to work out, you know, the, the different things that you've done. Right. As quick as you can. As quick as I can. Well, the, the, to start from the, from the, go back a tiny bit just to give you context that I think is, it, it, it plays into what I'm doing now. So I started right after high school. Um, I started working in an ad agency that was very focused on retail uh, companies. And, and at the time, the company worked with Itala or Hakman, the Hakman Group. And it was a time when, when Itala was not particularly relevant. It was an old, beautiful brand, but nobody, nobody over the under the age of sixty probably even knew about it. So to, to put a finger on a date, it's the late nineties. So late, yeah, mid uh, 90, 95, 96. Okay. And Sweden was really interesting at the time. You know, there was a the, the whole design boom started then. You know, we there were a number of designers that were on that, the tip yeah, of the, Tom, time. the the Thomases and yes. and and, and uh, I think CKR they started there. started and and. And there's all other things. There was uh, there was a bookstore that opened called Konstig in the in the cultural house, which was one of the first sort of beautiful bookstores that had art books and photography. Um, 
there was a lot of stuff going on. Sweden was really cool. There was a lot of stuff happening. And so, so that's the time I grew up. And so I worked in the, in the reception, answering the phone, as, as you know. That I'm I like glad to say. You've, you've corroborated <laughs> At this that. place. And we were working with, um, or the, the, I mean, I was a junior, but I was part of some of it. And, you know, so the, the agency worked with, part was digging out great stories about Itala and Kai Frank and Alvaro Alto and the stories, which was a lot of that was my to do the research. A lot of that was fell on me, but it was also working with new designers. So Jasper Morrison and Constantine Krieg and, and Mark Newson and the Thomases and a bunch of other people that, um, that I got to meet or, you know, be in the same room as, which is, which is really cool. But I think the really interesting thing was the approach to the whole sort of branding exercise, which, which wasn't about making ads. It was about, you know, changing the product and, you know, uh, uh, throwing out sort of bad uh, retailers that couldn't sell. And we said, you know, we're going to put it in these special places. And we did new POS systems and bags. And, and we did ads and stuff too, but we, we, we thought of the whole company as a whole thing. So I think that for me was the first time I was in advertising and I was like, oh, this is how you do it. And so my entire career, you know, 20 some plus years later, I still get incredibly grumpy when I get an assignment that's like, you know, fix our problem but, but go you, away. But you have to do it matches. through an ad. And it's like, well, it's not the, you know, your product's shit or the pricing is off or you're selling in the wrong space or it takes too long or, you know what I mean? Like the ad might be important. So that, that moment, it takes you to total design, to the ability right. to shape the whole the package, whole package. Right? 360. Okay, so then... So then that, was, that was formative, so and you, I did that. you carried that onto your own practice when right. you your own So uh, I did that, office. and then I applied to art school, and I to Paris here in, here in Stockholm, and they have art direction and they have copywriting. I searched, I actually applied to both, one of them under a, under a different name, and um, and I got accepted to both. And I chose copywriting for two reasons. One was it was shorter; it was only a year as opposed to two years. And yeah, you know, I, I think I'm a more of a writer than I am a um, art director, although I'm quite visual. But anyway, so I went uh, copywriting, and I was incredibly bored, you know, because I'd worked and I just felt the tempo was just too slow. Uh, I made some great friends and everything, but I, I didn't, you know, so we, so we started the agency sort of halfway through school um, and uh, we called the Graceland and we were, I was 21 years old. It was me and this other guy. And um, so in the U.S., this is a badge of honor. You're a dropout. Yeah, no, I actually finished. I got, finished? My, I got oh. my diploma. I don't know how exactly, because I was never there, but, but uh, they okay. gave it to me. Well, I guess <laughs> uh, you... But uh, so we started the agency and it was, you know, 96, 97. And it was this dot com madness. Uh, and I think we had this sort of uh, different approach to things because we didn't know any better. Uh, and so we got a ton of amazing clients and we grew. We were like 50 people, I think, at the end of it. Um, and I burnt out a bit because I worked too much. But anyway, so then I, so then I sold the agency and I went to New York in 2000. And uh, I wanted to be in film. I think I had sort of subconsciously recognized that uh, advertising and media was changing. I think that, that I understood that uh, the advertising model was changing. I didn't understand what it was going to become, but I understood that content was, which is a slightly overused word, but I'll be using it anyway, um, was important. And I started working for a film producer, a guy called... So the connection between content and film is that that is the best vehicle for content. I mean, I personally am a huge lover of film. And I think, you know, in many ways, film is this ultimate art form because it kind of combines all the other art forms into one. And you have 
you know, an audience or a cap. I mean, if you go to the movies, but you have this sort of attention of someone for 90 minutes, which is kind of amazing. I think I, I still am a big uh, cinephile. But so I wanted to work in film and I had some through connection. I got a, a sort of an internship and that then turned into a little development job at a person's uh, firm, a guy called Ed Saxon, who is a he's a he's a big producer. He, you know, he's won Academy Awards and stuff. So when I was there. Uh, he and his partner did uh, Adaptation, which is a movie with Spike Jones, and and uh, before that he done Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia and a bunch of other stuff. So I did that for a while, and simultaneously I really wanted to learn how films are made, and so I started working in production. So as a PA, and and then I kind of worked my way up, and then I went I went uh, on an interview uh, for a small student film, and they were looking for an assistant director. And uh, I thought that that was an assistant to the director. You bring coffee and maybe I could learn something. And um, uh, <laughs> the day before the, the interview, I um, called a friend of mine here who, who, um, who works in film here in Sweden. And he's like, no, first assistant director is... He's the number two. He's like the guy who runs set and organizes and schedules everything. And I was like, oh, damn, that's, <laughs> I don't know how to do that. So he's like, oh, God, okay, well, just, just say these things and you'll... You'll not make a fool of yourself in the interview and then just get out of it. And, um, and they gave me, gave me the job. And so I thought, let's try it. And so I did it. And it was pretty much a disaster. But um, I met some people there who then sort of took me under their wing and, and, and taught me how to actually do it. So I worked as, a, as, a, as an AD, as a first assistant director for, for some time and did quite a few shoots. And, and um, so I'm all what small is, independent. Help me understand. What, what does the assistant director do? Now, so now, ass- now, now that you've done it, I guess you can tell me. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, typically it's the sort of the trifecta of a producer, director, and, a, and an AD that sort of run. And then and the AD runs the set. So he, he or she is responsible for uh, breaking down the script, which you take a, a movie script and you break it down into parts. Uh, you know, how many characters, where the location, is it inside or outside, is it day or night, uh, what props are used, uh, what lighting do we need? Like, you know, in a, in a script, everything is, just, you know, if we're saying, it's described, but you yeah. need to pull it out. Right. And so then you pull it out, you use, a, you, use a, uh, a, a, you know, maybe it's changed, but you use a program called Movie Magic. Um, and um, you kind of color code things. It's very analog, and I love that. You sat and kind of underlined the, the script with different colors, and you took it into this computer system, and then you could start scheduling things. And it's like, you always do exterior before interior. You always do, you know, wide before close-ups. You, there's all these ways of shooting things, which is the same way, like, making so that, it. This giant schedule goes then back to director, who then... The director so has a say in it, obviously how he wants to do it, but it's pretty much the the idea that schedules it because you never you never shoot a movie in sequence. Obviously, you shoot it, you know, out of sequence, yes. right? You know, so uh, and it's you know the things that are it's weather, it's location. Maybe you have an actor for a certain time. So it's a seriously operational role. Super, super, which is weird because I'm really bad at that, but I loved it for some reason. I just loved it. I loved taking this sort of big piece of art and and sort of breaking it down into like digestible tiny bits, little right, bits you could actually um yeah and then you schedule it and you have you know and, and again it was very for me it was a very analog product i would print it out i have it on you know i'd put it on my floor i lived in this loft in, in williamsburg i'd put it all out and you'd see the whole movie and you'd be like you'd move things around and, and at a certain point you're like this is perfect and you know it's so intimately like somebody you know you could be on set and someone's like who's in this scene and you just you just know like no this guy you're not in that jacket because it's Monday so you have to be in the other jacket and your hair should be messy and you know you just know everything so you you just said that you didn't know what the job was and you don't feel particularly suited to it but then just a twinkle in your eye you're getting all excited about an operational role what's happening here 
But I think, I mean, isn't that, isn't, I, I don't know. I think for me, the role, it taught me to be a producer. And that's what I did after. It, it taught you how to be a producer. How to be a producer. Because I mean, you can't, you know, you can't be a good manufacturer if you don't understand what you're manufacturing. You have to have a certain understanding for okay. the parts, right? So you were so, you were right there on the coal face. Right. Uh, digging your way and, and now you can step back and finance it. And I can budget things. Budget I can schedule it. things. I, I know that you're not going to make that company move in an hour. It's going to take three hours. And have you thought of parking and toilets okay. and food? Yeah. And so we should get some extra money for that. So, you know, all that stuff. So, uh, you know, and again, yeah. I did, you know, I mean, I, I have the utmost respect for like proper assistant directors that do it on big, big movies. My, I did small things, but, but I learned it and it was, um, it was kind of amazing actually. And then, so we're still in film and we're, we're, going, still through, we're going quickly to your career. We're, yeah. we're still in the U.S. Still in the U.S. I was and always in New York. And, and somehow you make your way back to advertising, don't you? Or, yeah. Or? So I was, so I was working around in, in production. I was doing it. Uh, and it's a really, it's tough. Like you work long nights and it's, you know, it's it, being in production is, is hard. And I uh, wanted to produce things. So I started producing. I was an independent producer. I did a few things, an anthology film series. Uh, maybe that's the thing that I've done that's maybe the most sort of successful in some ways. But uh, it was called Districted. And it was an anthology uh, of shorts by different people. So we had artists, filmmakers, and photographers that we asked to make a short film on the subject of sex and, and sort of sexuality. So we worked with, you know, Marina Abramovic, uh, Larry Clark, Richard Prince, Matthew Barney, Gaspar Noé, Sam Taylor Wood, and some people that I'm forgetting. So, um, so that was a really fun project. And, and basically, I went, I was, you know, there were, there were a few of us, but I was the one who came from film. And so I produced it, scheduled it, made sure that uh, uh, all the agreements were in place, uh, made sure that things happened. And... Um, and uh, it was not an you know sort of financial success, but it was creatively. So d this is the high very point of that phase, right? You, you you detailed it. Yeah, you're quite proud of it. So where 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 does that lead you? Suddenly you've achieved so, this, right? And what happens? Well, so at the end of that, I thought you know I'm going to turn this into a career. I'm going to be a you know proper producer, make lots of money, and be a whatever. And and the model, I'm not going to go into why, but it, it's a it's sort of a broken model. You're last paid. Uh, first in, last out. So it's a it's a terrible business model to be an independent producer, and uh, and I was just really tired of being poor. And so I started thinking about how can I sort of turn this. Like I'm pretty good at building brand. I understand advertising, and now I know how to do film stuff. How can I kind of combine it? And so at that point, I started talking to uh, some old friends of mine who were then running a very successful digital agency that uh, had Absolute as a client. So they did all the Absolute digital stuff. And they were in New York all These the time. These are the famous campaigns at that time, right? When when the bottle becomes the prime. Right. No, you think, think about the print campaign, probably. Yes. Yeah. So, so Absolute was in a really interesting transition. They had, they had done the bottle campaign that everybody knows. That was yeah. an agency in New York called Shite Day. And they yes. were, for reasons that are almost impossible to fathom, uh, the, the, the powers that be at, at, at Absolute had decided to abandon that campaign, which is, I think, a huge mistake, but whatever. And they kind of tried, they'd struggled for a while to come up with a new campaign. And, and uh, it landed in that digital became incredibly important, and it had been. And so my friends at this agency called Great Works were the agency of record. They were doing all the digital stuff, and they were going back and forth to New York. They were in New York, you know, every other week. And so I said, well, why don't you start an office here and, and I'll, and, and I'll, I'll consult here. for you, I'll help you and, 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 uh, and maybe I'll make some money. And, uh, and they said yes. And so we opened the office and we, the idea was to sort of combine 
sort of the technology aspect with, you know, uh, entertainment or content and, and design and, and be more of a more of a production company model than maybe a, a full service agency. Anyway, so we started that and that's in 2007. And uh, we started Great Works in New York. I started the, the office. And again, we grew quite quickly and we, you know, we had a really good run. Uh, in the end, in 2011, uh, we separated. There was a, we were owned by a Japanese company and uh, there was a big tsunami in Japan. And yes. I think they, you know, decided to focus um, on on Japan and, and sort of divested their foreign uh, things. And so we separated or I, I left and I started basically a new company that uh, I called C&Co or Carlson & Company, which was basically taking the learnings from the Great Wars time, which was that there's a lot of companies that were going through transitions, you know, and 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 they needed help. And it, it and, and the sort of the marketplace was that they could go to either an advertising agency or a PR agency and get tactile things. They could get a press release or an ad, or they can go to McKinsey or Bain or whatever and get, get a sort bit of, of advice and, and get advice. Is, yeah. yeah that's, you know, very expensive. And, you know, those firms are typically not terribly good at implement implementation. You know, they get these things and, and the advice might be very sound, but it's hard for companies sometimes to know to what to do with it. it. Yeah. And so I, I, I had all these clients that were like, we need to be digital, but what does it mean? Or we, our retail strategy needs to change, or we need new products, or you know, we've read in the thing that we need to do X, or but we don't know how to do it. And so right away, uh, I got a bunch of great. I you know started working with MoMA in in New York, the Museum of Modern Art, helping them on some things. We did I launched a couple of new products for for Absolute and Pinot Ricard that at that point owned it. Um, which was projects that were, it was not about advertising. It was going back to the early Itala days. It was like, we have a problem. We're not relevant. And here's the practical steps here's that you have to take, step. right? And, and looking at it from sort of from all, all, maybe it's the product formulation. Maybe it's the bottle design. Maybe it's where it's sold. Maybe the pricing is off. Maybe the advertising is off. But it's like, you look at all of it. You can't. So that, that type of agency was new at that time. Right, because you said it had something to do with how digital was scaring the wits out of a lot of companies, right. and they were like, "We must do something about ourselves." I or think timing was pretty good. I think looking back, the mistake that I think I've made uh, at the time was that I set it up as an agency. I should have set it up as it's me. I can help you. I'm a one. I'm a consultant the way that a designer or a photographer would be. I, I think I played agency for a little while, and we, you know, we had some some stuff, but it's it, taking on taking on the role of advising and kind of managing a whole client. It's, it's, it's a lot of admin. You, 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 you venture that on your own. Why, why, yeah. what's, what's the problem with having the agency? You've said there's admin, there's cost, there's, why, why are you looking? I, I think that the old model of agency, the sort of the full, the, the full service retainer model is, I think it sets up an unhealthy relationship with the, between the client and the, and the agency. I think the agency is always feeling that they're underpaid and the client always feels that they're paid too much. And it's, I, I, I've noticed so for me, for, why is that different if you were yourself, if you showed up and say, look guys, I can give you a few words of advice and that'll be this much. Why would the client feel better about that? Because I think, well, in, I can only speak for advertising because advertising agencies don't get paid that way. You get paid for production. 
or an admin. You get you get you get paid in hours for doing planning stuff. and stuff yes. or producing it. If you don't produce it, if I if I advise you to sit there, do you know, nothing. To sit there and do nothing. There's, then, nothing there's no way to make money. That's right. And so when I changed from being an advertising agent, that great work, we were an agency, to going over and being a consultant, I could actually charge for my advice, even if there was no creative output, even if we didn't produce anything. And that was huge. And I noticed that just for me personally, I'm a project guy. Like I I like to have a beginning and middle and an end. I have clients or, or relationships that I've had for 20 years that are, or, you know, that I, we go from one project to the next, but it has a, very distinct beginning, middle, and end, you know, and I don't like the sort of not the nebulous sort of ongoing, um, I'm your guy and you're, you know what I mean? I don't, it's just not for me. And it's taken me, I mean, I'm 42 years old. I just realized this recently that I need to be much better at sort of, this is what I can do for you. This is what I won't do. Uh, this is how much you're going to pay me. Uh, and this is what you're going to get. And this is in the, this is in the process where it's going to get a little bumpy and you're going to get feel really nervous. I've seen it before. Don't worry. And to be much more clear about, um, so is this clarity reflected in what you're doing right now? Yes. I th- uh, the roles, maybe. I mean, the roles, yeah, the roles that you're, that you have currently, right? Because you're connected to Alma. Yes. Yes. And forgive my ignorance, but are you working on other projects or I have some other projects yeah I mean Alma takes up you know majority of my time um, but I have other things you know I'm doing a few other things but but um, and I have a few other companies but essentially Alma is Alma is to me the perfect project for me because it's it, it has everything under you know pardon the pun but under under one roof all the things that I love right so I get to I get to do concepting which I think is what I'm good at um, kind of finding you know an idea that is it's clear enough that people can get excited about it, but it's uh, kind of big enough that lots of things can fit under it. Uh, and I think, you know, we've worked with architects and designers and artists and music people and food people and, and then, like every single person who's been in this project. Like I've been, I'm a producer in this project. I mean, I you know, my title is creative director, which to me, being a creative director, a producer. Or an editor, of, it's the same. Comparable It's roles. the same role. I mean, it's like you either you have an idea, or so you you buy or take or embrace someone else's idea, and then you get people to get to excited about it and make it happen, and make it happen, and give them you know freedom and and you know um, run with stuff and get them excited. I mean, we have, I mean, we've worked with amazing people. I mean, throughout my life, that's the thing that makes me the most excited: the fact that I've worked with you know I produced. A film with Marina Abramovich. We were in Belgrade the first time she had been back since she left. You know, we were in in her hometown. You know, I was at when she had the the her dinner at Mom, uh, retrospective here at Modana. You know, I was at the dinner. It's like that to me is amazing. I'm not working with her right now. We're, we're sort of friends, but to have worked with this amazing talent, you know, and in this house, we worked with uh, um, Tom Lidigord, who who were our architects and did all the structural stuff. You know, we've worked with furniture companies like 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 La Espada and with, you know, Lyndon and Rosanna were here the other day. Like, they see their things here. That, to me, is, like, so exciting. It gets me so pumped. Let me push you in a different direction. I, yeah. I had the, the, I did the silly thing, which is to look uh, at your Instagram page and spotted a link. And I said, right. let me let me follow this because, obviously, it gives you no clue, right? It's like going down a rabbit hole. And out comes a very conventional newspaper, right? Um, the New York Times, and it's 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 the review of the year in pictures. I'm sure you. Yeah. So my first question is, why did you put that? Why is that your link? 
Oh, oh, okay. No, I think it was Why the link in the bio. Is the link broken? Did I end up somewhere else? No, no, no. Or? I think no, sometimes so, so I... So it goes, the link in your bio, the link in your bio goes takes to me to the 2018 Summary and Pictures, which right. I'm also a reader, but I had not picked that up. Right. And I went actually went through them all from January, right. February, uh, January to December, right. sorry. Yeah. Um, and kind of absorbed the whole year that way. Right. But I was intrigued. Why, why... Why was this on your on your bio? I mean, what I mean, are you if, trying to tell us? Why was there? I mean, I think uh, you know sometimes I post things and then I, if you want to go there, you go to the you know link in bio. Yes. So maybe I just forgot to change it. But you know, I did it. It was right before Christmas, and I think okay. I was feeling sort of end of year, um, you know, that sort of feeling of um, giving but thanks and whatever. And was I, it was I, a year that you were grateful for when you look at those images and all the, the, the news that's. Well, I'm not grateful for a lot of things that's happened, but I'm, I am feeling incredibly grateful to the men and women who are tirelessly reporting on all the shit that's going on in the world. Okay, so it's a statement. I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, uh, you know, journalism is incredibly important. I think that some of the rhetoric that's coming out of not only, our, you know, our, our benevolent leader in, uh, in the United States, but in other places, you know, we see, you know, sort of the rhetoric of fake news and, and uh, enemy of the people and, and sort of journalists being murdered, uh, I think, find very troubling. And um, I think that the, the last few years of, you know, some horrendous decisions that have been made by the people and sort of democratically, uh, you know, democratic processes have been, just based on ignorance. But is the reporting making a difference? Is it changing minds? Or is it just preaching to the converted? I mean, I think that's a bigger question. I think that, uh, I think that it does trickle into the mainstream. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, the current climate in, in the United States, I think that um, mainstream, you know, proper media is doing an important job. Does it reach everybody that needs to be reached? No, probably not. And I think that the, you know, the promises of the internet was supposed to save us all and hasn't quite come true in all the ways we thought. It's locked us uh, up in silos, really, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, but I also think that things go in, you know, go in cycles. I mean, we've had, you know, 20 years of incredibly rapid globalization, which has been great for some people and not so great for other people. I mean, I, I actually I was having a conversation with someone just the other day about, about a place like Alma. You know, I live in New York and I go between New York and Stockholm and LA and London. And, you know, it's very, I can throw a stone and hit someone who is an investor, who's incredibly educated, who, you know, I have people, friends who are gay and from all sorts of places in the world. I'm exposed to a lot of things, right? Because I live in big cities. There's, you know, you go an hour north of here and you're not, or you go an hour west of, of New York and you're not. And those people did not benefit in the same way that I did uh, by, from globalization and from, from some of the technology and, and, and advancements that have happened. And I think it's almost like a place like Alma is great, or, you know, there, there's obviously equivalents to this in other places around the world, but like, it's almost like I want to build this in West town. Virginia. And take over a big old warehouse that's not used and create a place that's not as snooty as we maybe are, can be perceived, but to, uh, you know, to open up this idea of a place where people can congregate. But that implies that we need to convert the other side, doesn't it? It's, you almost sound like a missionary opening Yeah, a, maybe. A I mean, I don't think, I don't, you know... 
your culture is more about missionary than we. Well, you did it more recently than mine, but you know, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, we did that and it didn't work so well. The Viking stuff. No, but I think. No, but, but hold on. There's, yeah. there's a serious point here. No, 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 it's like something is broken, right? That's I, where you, that's your starting point. Something is broken, yeah. and I don't think you have to and convert you, people. You, I think suddenly you you said I offer a solution here. I offer a problem. I'm not currently, but I would like to. I think I think that the idea of the meeting house, which you know, is a is a very sort of American thing. Like every Which, by little, the way, is, is a Quaker. Which is Quaker, place of exactly. Yeah. yeah, but it's you know, it's Quaker. It's you know, it, it's also Shaker. I mean, it's you know, it's that idea of the kind of very. I mean, I guess it's from British, or I mean, it's it's Northern European, and anyway. But this idea of, of you know, you have this little house that's built, and and it's on Meeting House Road, and that's where you have weddings and meetings, and you you know, it's where community. It's happens. where community happens, and this idea, like in some ways. Alma is the meaning house, right? I mean, we are for for an uh, elite group of people who who are you know very successful and very interesting and la la la. But you know, could you do that in other places? I believe that you could, and I think I I would love to do that. I would love to do a project that was less focused on you know affluent urban you know um, people and maybe focus on something that was a little bit outside. That would be amazing. Because my struggle of the last two years as I, I've tried to absorb what is happening around me, is I don't know what to do. You know, I, I sometimes I think compromise is important and dialogue is important, but that implies we're going to end up in a strange halfway house where the values of other people, I have to absorb them, right? Right. <laughs> and, and I'm not entirely comfortable with, with that. Right. But I, I also know that if I don't engage people, then why right. they're going to come over to my point of view. It's, it's, uh, and, and I can't get, I can't, I can't square the circle. But I think, I mean, I think that the end of the day is, um, this idea of sort of assuming positive intent. Uh, have you heard that expression? Assume positive intent? No, but I want to, I want to absorb right. that. So assume, assume positive, positive intent. intent. So something happens in the workplace, somebody makes a mistake, somebody's, whatever it is, I just assume positive. It means assume that they meant well, assume that. Whatever happened that in this case was a bad thing, assume they meant well. Assume that their intentions are, are, are good. How does that then help me? So now, now I'm no longer vengeful. I don't. Right. You I don't, don't say this guy did this to hurt right. me. You tr- then I think you start looking at why. You know what happened. So then you either you either get into okay, well, the process. The reason you're late is not because you don't respect me. It's because of you didn't get my calendar invitation. So maybe we need to look over the, the calendar system, right? So you get, you get to a root problem that you can maybe fix. So that's the, the, the simple way. The other way of looking at it is, you know, after the elect, you know, I'm just going back to politics in the U S after Trump got elected the next day in the United in New York was incredible. Like I, it, in a very sad way, but it was like walking around it must have been the same when like, you know, Kennedy I, was shot. I have a close friend who lives in L.A., and she said exactly the it same thing. It was like a big funeral. It was, okay. a, it was a morning. Everywhere you went, they looked, it, it was like, I know, man. I'm like, Do you want a coffee? I know. Here. You know, it was, everyone was depressed. And, and, and then I think a lot of people started like, how did this happen? And some of our, some of our media that missed it, you know, it started going to the places that they, you know, had voted for Trump. Reported, yeah. And all of a sudden you see these people who are good people, but they're desperate. You know, the factory closed, they don't have a job. You see these people who used to be sort of pri- proud working class or middle class have nothing. 
Nothing. And no one has talked to them. No one, I mean, the Democratic Party didn't even visit. They didn't go there. They just assumed that they would vote anywhere. And all of a sudden, this charlatan, this trickster, this lying scumbag shows up. Takes a few minutes and, says, and addresses them. And addresses them and talks to them and, and lies to them, obviously. But if you're desperate and you're, you know, you're recycling Coca-Cola cans to pay for food for your children and someone comes and says, I'm going to make it work you're inclined to believe him. And so I think that, again, like, I think that there needs to be a serious conversation about the injustices of, 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 uh, of capitalism. We haven't, you know, I think the, the next big issue, you know, maybe after environment, environmentalism is going to be, you know. How do you run well? How do we, how how do do we run, run well? I mean, yeah. capitalism isn't really working at the moment. You know, it's leaving too many people behind. We're ruining our, our planet. You know, I think things that are incredibly obvious, like the, the Dutch economist that was in Davos and just pointed out that we're all talking about philanthropy and we're talking about, you know, incredibly wealthy people giving money to art institutions and whatever. That's great, but we don't have roads. People are dying in the street. Like, you know, maybe you need to pay some tax. You know, giving money to, to a museum and going to, uh, you know, fancy dinners doesn't help the fact that we have a dying and aging population and people can't read. So you got to pay tax. And he was just saying that's the one thing we're not talking about. We're talking about all, you know. So I think I think that there is there's a lot of people. There, there's always going to be people who are racist and who are sexist and who are homophobic and who are. And maybe we just have to accept that a certain amount of people will always be that. And then and and kind of not focus so much on them, but try to focus on the people that are not actually inherently racist and bad. And assume that they, they were trying to do something And they're just good. scared. And, you know, they need someone to blame, and they blame the Jews in the 30s, or they're blaming foreigners now, the Brexit, whatever the hell they're blaming, right? But it's based on the fact that they're feeling hopeless. And it's easy for me, as a card-carrying member of the East Coast elite, and I fly around and I whatever, to look down on that. But, you know, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a place where... I, I never wanted for anything. And so, um, I don't know. I, I, I try to apply that. It's not easy. You know, I get angry. I have a temper. I get, you know, incredibly tired of people. But I try, I try to assume positive intent. I try to assume that, you know, you didn't mean, you didn't, you didn't mean it the way it came out and something else happened and, and maybe we can fix that. And that's going to be the phrase of conversation. So, you know, we've gone from answering the phone at the agency to politics in the space of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> 30 minutes or something yeah. like that. Thank you, Frederick, for the time you've granted us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining our conversation and help us make new friends by leaving us a review. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Stay well and see you soon. Ooh.